welcome to Triad Warriors. I am your host, Annie Randall, and this is a safe space for real talk regarding all things Jesus, mental health, and of course, your relationship with food. Today we have a very special guest. In fact, we have our first guest and I can't think of anyone else who I'd rather kick off the interview portion of this podcast with. With us today, we have my friend and fellow anti-diet advocate, Carly Newberg. Carly is an author, speaker, freelance writer, and an Enneagram type one. Personally, I have known Carly for nearly six years, I think it is now. And what is so interesting about our friendship is that Carly and I met back during a time when both of us were going through pretty similar hells. However, we did not realize how much we had in common until we each began speaking out about it and speaking out about the challenges that we had both once faced. I honestly cannot say enough good things about Carly. She is a true inspiration and someone who has made and is continuing to make a positive impact in so many people's lives. Carly and her story truly are a gift to this world. With that said, Carly launched her first book, Good Enough, a little over a year or so ago. I highly recommend that you read it. She also recently launched the audiobook version of Good Enough. So Carly, before we hop into talking about the Enneagram and food, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about your book. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And of course, I'm just so excited for you. And yeah, the beautiful introduction and I can't say enough good things about you too. Um, You're so kind. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's fun to think about, not fun, but like it is um, ironic that when we met, we both were struggling and didn't mm-hmm. know it. And I feel like we have been able to grow closer, like as yeah. we both got comfortable being more vulnerable about our struggles. So um, super, yeah, super excited to be here. Um, I did publish my book Good Enough about a little over a year ago, like you said, um, and just launched the audiobook about a month ago. Um, and then uh, probably about six months ago, um, launched the hardback cover or the hardback version. So um, it's been a really long journey, uh, but Good Enough is a memoir of my experiences going through and eating disorder and recovering. Um, I talk about all that related and impacted my, related to and impacted my eating disorder, Mm -hmm. um, like childhood trauma, um, diet culture, comparison. Um, I talk about monsters in my head and uh, Mm -hmm. that's something that I'm sure we'll get into more as we talk about uh, Enneagram ones and the very loud inner critic or many inner critics that they have. but yeah, it is basically just a very vulnerable trek into my story, but also an invitation for other people who are wanting to learn more about eating disorders or who are on their journey of recovery. Um, it's just a book to basically let people know like, hey, you're not alone, like your mental health struggles, even if you struggle with something completely different than an eating disorder are unique, um, they're important. And uh you have like a friend to walk with you through those struggles. Um, and that's really what I hope to be for all my readers. Um, I tie in some of my face, I tie in uh, journal entries from my past 
to sort of emphasize points I make or um, messages I give. Um, and what I've heard from other people is that they have to take good enough in very bite-sized chunks because it is a very confrontational read. Um, it's very vulnerable and that's exactly what I wanted it to be um, because vulnerability has been a big lesson for me, um, but a very important one. And it, uh, writing the book truly did help me heal a lot um, myself. So yeah, that's available in ebook, paperback, hardback, hardback and audiobook formats on Amazon through Barnes and Noble. Um, and then through my personal website, if anyone wants to sign copy. Awesome. Yeah. I'm seriously so impressed that you went through that whole process. Like writing a book is not an easy feat at all. And to do everything you did in such a short period of time is seriously so impressive. But one of the things you said about all of the different facets you kind of pulled into your book is one of the things I find to be very unique and helpful about your book. And then what I find to be really beautiful about it is like you said, you want it to help people. You're not just telling your story to tell your story. You're telling it in such a way that people have to read it in small chunks because it's producing change within individual lives. And I know when I read it personally, and I've been on my own recovery journey for years and I had to take it in chunks <laughs> as well. I was just like, whoa, there's a lot here and even things like me knowing you personally there's like things I was like I did not know like about this <laughs> story um but it was so relatable and that's what I loved about it yeah I I will be honest and say like I had to write it in small chunks too like it yeah it was there were certain portions of the book where it was like oh, okay this is ringing up a lot for me and mm -hmm. it's like I'm being triggered by my own words yeah. <laughs> and I need to like step away and take a break and do something else for a little while. And then like, there would be times where I wouldn't come back to a certain section for like a week. Cause I was just like, I had to prep myself for it. Um, mm -hmm. But I imagine that that's what a lot of, um, you know, authors who write memoirs go through is yeah. just, yeah. Having to sort of, uh, choose to write portions of the book at the right time and, yeah. and honor, honor whatever needs you have throughout the process. Yeah. Cause you're unpacking a lot of things, things that have probably yeah. been shoved away for a while and yeah. having to reface that. So yeah, you yeah. might even like experience that too, like with your podcast, I'm sure yeah. like, as you start talking about certain events from your past, like, um, mm -hmm. I think any, any creator has to, if they're sharing personal stories, just have to be careful and not like lose themselves in yeah. the process. Yeah, definitely. That is a really great piece of advice for me and any other <laughs> creatives out there as well. Awesome. Well, everyone, I highly, again, highly recommend Good Enough. So definitely check it out. Carly listed all the places that you can find it. I occasionally share her posts and stuff. So you'll be able to find her account through my account very easily. Um, but we'll go ahead and get started. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, Carly is an Enneagram type one. Enneagram type ones are known by a multitude of names, including the perfectionist, the reformer, and the idealist. 
Enneagram type ones are also described as principled, purposeful, and rational in their behaviors and their decisions. The core desire of a type one is to be or do good, and the core fear is of being evil or falling short of expectations. Like all nine types, Enneagram ones have their strengths as well as their weaknesses, but rather than sitting here and providing you some textbook explanation of Enneagram type one, we have a type one here. So I'd like to give you a chance to describe your experience with living in this world as a type one, Carly. So we won't hop into the relationship with food piece just yet, but how would you describe your overall experience as a type one? Uh, exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> One word, but, exhausting. <laughs> no. Uh, it, no, but it is like as, as a type one, like to do good is and to have that core desire like means that you put a lot of pressure on your shoulders mm -hmm. um, and hold yourself to a really high standard, higher than um, anyone else holds you to. Um, and that is what it feels like to be a one is to place really high expectations on myself and to, um, as I mentioned earlier, deal with a really loud inner critic, sometimes many, which is what I refer to as monsters in my head. Mm -hmm. um, but to have these little monsters, I always imagine them just like sitting on my shoulders and just telling me, you know, oh, you should be doing this or like, mm -hmm um you know are it's more than just a core desire to do good but it's a it's a di desire to be right and to mm -hmm. live in accordance with your values and to the best of your ability um and uh that makes it hard for times when like you're struggling mentally or you're just not having a good day and uh your body might be telling you like i need rest right now um but I'm sure many ones will relate when I say that like rest does not come easy as a mm -hmm. one because we know what we're capable of and mm -hmm. um, we're constantly pushing ourselves to be better. Um, a lot of people call us the self-improvement nerds who just mm -hmm. like you talk about self-improvement like I'll talk about it for like a week straight with you like let's do it um, yeah. <laughs> because we're all about like we're all about like goals making lists um at least I am like I'm very organized um I thrive most in like a clean environment um and I pay super close attention to detail um mm -hmm. so much so that sometimes that leads to overthinking and ruminating on things yeah. um but with any number you know like your your weaknesses are also your strengths um yeah. and I think that that's something to remember like as you approach your Enneagram number that like yeah it's scary it's hard to admit certain things about yourself but also remembering like the things that like you struggle with there is also a healthy balance but like make those things really great assets to who mm -hmm. you are and like what you have to offer um so I'd say that's mainly what I deal with on a daily basis is like overthinking um yeah. holding myself <laughs> to a really high standard uh, and struggling to rest and honor my body's needs um, and my mind's needs uh, versus being productive all the time. Um, I, I like to tell people like I can accomplish what most people it would take them like a week or month to accomplish. I'll accomplish it in a day and still feel like I did not do enough. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you have <laughs> these just extremely high expectations and it's like, uh, no, I'm more productive than that. I could have done more. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes my partner will be like, 
what's wrong? And like, I'll tell him, like, I just feel like I didn't get anything done. I wanted to get done today. And he's, he'll just look at me like with these crazy eyes, like, are you kidding? Like you did so much. And so he'll actually make me like repeat to back to him. Like, okay, tell me everything you did get done today. And I'll like repeat it back to him. And I'm like, wow, like that is so like, that is so much when I say it out loud, but like just thinking about all the things I didn't get done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's easy to spiral. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good that you have him as a support to help you remember all the things you have done. Um, and also probably too that achieving things or doing things, getting tasks done, isn't even your worth, but like when you have that monster in your head or the, on your shoulder, how you picture it, telling you that you could have done more, done better. That's like so hard to fight on your own. And sometimes you need that outside perspective. I really like how you said earlier, I was actually going to bring it up that, um, your weaknesses are also your strengths. Because I think that's so true as a type one, someone who really wants to do right and be right. And that can play out in a lot of really positive ways of like seeking justice and using it for a lot of really positive things. I mean, I see that in your work as an anti-diet advocate and against weight stigma and all of those things. But then when it's flipped onto you and you have all those expectations on you, that can be quite crippling. For sure. Yeah, Yeah. that's a great point. We, yeah, we do mean well. And even, even when we're hard on the people we love, we mean well, and we just want, um, we are like, I I have a nine wing, so I'm also Mm. sort of like Mm -hmm. a peacemaker. Um, and that's really what we're after is just like, we want everyone to be well and right and like good in the world. And we're just trying to do our part, but sometimes we, uh, we fail to do it in like the the most healthy way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which happens with all types. You know, you have the levels of health sure. and we're all at different, different stages at different points. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so as you mentioned on your Instagram um, and in other places, I'm sure you're what, like four years into recovery now? Yeah, about four. Okay. Awesome. Mm -hmm. And there have obviously been a lot of changes that you have experienced over the past few years regarding your relationship with food and body image, but looking back at all of the years in which you did struggle with food and you did struggle with body image, how would you have described your relationship with food maybe like five years ago? And in what ways do you feel as though your type one personality played a role in some of those struggles? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, my relationship with food and my body was very obsessive uh, during my eating disorder when I was struggling. Um, it, I dealt a lot with uh, body dysmorphia. So, um, you know, looking in the mirror, perceiving flaws that weren't actually there or ruminating on parts of my body so much that I actually started to imagine for instance, like my right calf being bigger than my left calf, like just like really silly things where it's like, no one else is recognizing that, but I would stare at myself for so long in the mirror, morning, Mm -hmm. noon, and night, um, and would weigh myself multiple times a day, Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, it took up really all of my energy and capacity. Mm -hmm. Um, I was so obsessed with 
put it like knowing what I was putting into my body with calorie counting with writing down like what I ate every day and trying to analyze like how I could be better or like Mm -hmm. how I could reach like whatever number or made up goal I had in my head more efficiently by like you know googling which is horrible never google weight loss tips or anything no, of that no. nature because <laughs> it's all horrible yeah it's just where diet culture thrives um no. so yeah but um it was very very obsessive and so, so toxic to mm-hmm. my overall well-being that um you know there'd be times where I would cancel plans with my friends because mm-hmm. I was it was more worth it to me to know that like I could stay in my safe zone and eat my safe foods and not have to be um, challenged by my friends or peers to, uh, you know, go and get frozen yogurt spontaneously. Like I didn't Mm -hmm. want to have to expend the energy to like make up an excuse as to why I couldn't do that. It was easier for me to isolate myself Mm -hmm. and to, even though I was super lonely to, be alone because I wanted to uh, stay within my very strict box mm-hmm. of rules. Um, yeah. That box does not have any room for spontaneity, as, <laughs> as you know. Zero and room, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, and it's, especially as a one, um, we do when we commit to things because we are so type A and, and driven, we commit like 150%. Like mm-hmm. we just yeah. go so all in that it's like you burn yourself out and I was talking to a friend recently Mm -hmm. and was telling them like during my eating disorder I ate so many hummus and carrots (laughs) like (laughs) I think of hummus and carrots now and I just like want to gag because I'm like oh yeah oh like I just overdid it you know I have foods like Um, that too zucchini is mine I'm like oh that's disgusting (laughs) (laughs) way too many but but I do keep trying because I'm like you know I used to love that snack but like it's like there's just certain things where it's like you just you overdid it like yeah (laughs) dang it you overdid it again like and and I do that with still like you know just simple things it's like I did it with the Enneagram actually Mm -hmm. like um when I was trying to find out my number this will tell this will tell you even more about a one but (laughs) I thought I was a four for like a year um and uh I was fours are like very emotional Mm -hmm. um they're uh they love melancholy like they thrive (laughs) yeah yeah uh and I was just like you know thought I was a four well uh ones go to a four in times of unhealth or in times Mm -hmm. of stress Mm -hmm. um so but I thought like no I don't just go to a four in times of unhealth or stress like I am always a four Mm-hmm. Um, but this was a period when like I wasn't well mentally and I can look yeah. back and realize like no wonder I resonated so much with before like I was going through an eating disorder yeah you um, were in a time of stress <laughs> yeah but with the Enneagram like I eventually after like a year of thinking I was a four I was like okay I'm gonna like dive in and do some like more research and try and learn more about myself um, mm-hmm. this is during my recovery and I started learning about a one and I was like, hmm, like this is really starting to resonate, especially when it comes to like food and exercise and mm-hmm. body image. Um, and I would, I was so obsessed that like I was listening to a podcast every time I got in my car on like either a one or a four. 
and even if it was like it was like a 10 minute drive I'd like get to my destination and I would just like sit in my car and like be taking notes on my phone and (laughs) I was like it was driving me nuts that I could not pinpoint my number and I was like I have to find out if I'm like a four one like I have to know (laughs) that I can improve Mm -hmm. and it was just this whole thing and like I stepped back one night and I was like I am obsessing over this like my someone would have came into my apartment and been like this crazy this lady is crazy like (laughs) I had like notepads full of like fours versus yeah yeah, versus ones and like books and and uh (laughs) and I was like I like this is what a one would do like I am taking this to the extreme yeah you have lists yeah and spreadsheets all all in a all in a goal to be right and like to know that I can improve I'm like you're a one like that is yeah (laughs) just look at what you're doing (laughs) yeah Yeah, but um but you know taking things to the extreme really Mm -hmm. relates to uh what happened during my eating disorder like taking healthy things like eating healthy um and moving your body and Mm -hmm. uh you know treating yourself to to yummy foods I did all Mm -hmm. of those things I but I took them to the extreme to where I got caught in a restrict binge and purge Mm -hmm. cycle yeah um so yeah uh it's you know a lot of people it's hard even for my partner to know like how do I help how how to help me as a recovered mm-hmm. individual like when I still struggle because like we all mm-hmm. struggle even yeah. when we're we're well and recovered um mm-hmm. but knowing like you know how do I how do I help them when it's like what my problem was is actually a healthy thing that I just took too far yeah. um so it's it's confusing I think for both mm-hmm. the individual who's struggling because they're like yeah. wait I'm doing something healthy yeah and then also the people who want to help that person because they're like okay, I don't know what to do here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, especially because they're like, yeah, you are doing some things healthy, but you're just doing it very intensely. And like, it crosses that line into unhealth. But it's so hard when you're in the middle of it to see that it's too intense and that it's mm-hmm. obsessive because you're like, I'm caring for my body. You were a runner. So you were running, you're eating healthy foods, hummus and carrots, nothing wrong with that. But you know, <laughs> if you're eating hummus and carrots, because you're terrified of other foods, th- then maybe there's a problem there. Uh, but it's so hard to see right. that, especially when your tendency is to go hard on things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it never helps when and I'm I'm sure that you can relate to this, but it never helps when people tell you that like you're oh, what you're yeah. doing is healthy when they mm-hmm. tell you like you look so good, like you know, you're like you're so healthy, like mm-hmm. teach me your ways. And you're mm-hmm. like, ooh, like I am healthy, like what you know, yeah. I must you get be those doing affirmations. Right? Yeah. 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 But it's like, oh, they were only, like and you know, not from a uh not with bad intentions, but they mm-hmm we're unintentionally reinforcing those behaviors during yeah. that time, um, which bury you deeper into disordered eating in the, in the long run. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's like they're those well-intentioned compliments, but they don't know what's going on behind the scenes, especially if you are also isolating yourself, which is a very common thing in eating disorders is isolation. Eating disorders happen in the closet. Usually people don't know about it, but it's Mm -hmm. so much easier for people to say these well-intentioned compliments 
and not really know what's going on behind the scene and the impact that those quote compliments could have. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, it's hard, but, um, Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that it's, it's not possible to, to move out of it. And, you know, now I have a, I have a way healthier relationship with, you know, Mm -hmm. both food and exercise, which I'm sure we'll get into, but yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely get into that. Um, that's where the transformation happens <laughs> and all the <laughs> yeah. backstory now. Uh, so can you think of a time in your life when you believed, we kind of talked about this a little bit, but believed in the superiority of a specific diet or a specific pattern of eating? And if yes, what were those diets slash patterns of eating? And what was that experience like? Yeah, uh, well, you know, some of the main things that are ways of eating that um, I was convinced were best were to stay away from red meat, to avoid sugar, to avoid dairy. Mm -hmm. Um, I was told things from media, from the internet to not drink my calories. Um, So that meant like no juice, like Mm -hmm. no, no beverage other than water, which I drank way too much of. I didn't know you could drink too much water, but I drank so much that it was like almost like you know could have put me in the hospital yeah Um, electrolyte imbalances and stuff (laughs) yeah yeah like not another thing I just took to the extreme I'm like oh I need to drink more water okay we're just gonna overdo it like everything else (laughs) Uh, drink like four gallons (laughs) yeah yeah um I uh I got I jumped into some of the fad diets there for a while when I was in Mm -hmm. college um I especially since I was cooking for myself and was grocery shopping, like I was able to try new things. So I was a vegan for a tiny bit. Um, mm-hmm. I was vegetarian. I was pescatarian. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, some of those attempts were in an effort to like be more sustainable and mm-hmm. to like be an advocate of the environment. And then other attempts were like, what's the healthiest way I can eat and like still get away mm-hmm. with like, you know, what are the, what are loopholes into actually, like, to actually enjoy things that I, mm-hmm. I like, but to also yeah. stay safe. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's one thing I've talked so. about on my Instagram before about those like restrictive diets and how, especially for people who have a history of eating disorders, how things like vegan or vegetarian or paleo, whatever those, whatever it is, where there may be valid reasons to do that, sustainability or animal rights, all these things end up just being this safety net because it's like way more socially acceptable to not eat pizza that has cheese on it because you're a vegan versus because it gives you a heart attack. Like that's a little less socially acceptable. (laughs) But if you can say, oh, I'm vegan, it's this easy excuse to not eat that food. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And if you are going through an eating disorder, like it's so easy to even convince yourself like Mm -hmm. that you're doing something for X, Y, and Z reason when it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, you're actually doing it because you're, you have these deep rooted fears or lies Mm -hmm. that you're carrying with you, um, that you're trying to like protect yourself from. But yeah, yeah, yeah. we can just as much as we convince others, like we, we convince ourselves too. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's what I think is, is scary and um Mm -hmm. only contributes to like the denial um but something else I thought of that sort Mm -hmm. of I guess relates to being a one is I had this really weird uh phobia with food during my eating disorder where 
I, um, in addition to like avoiding, you know, sugar and bread mm-hmm. and all those things, uh, I was super terrified of like repeating the same color of food in a day. Um, okay. so like carrots and sweet potato in the same day, mm-hmm. like off limits. Um, in addition to that, Mm-hmm. I was super terrified of repeating flavors, um, which meant like if I had like peanut butter with an apple, like mm-hmm. for breakfast or whatever, like I wouldn't have like a peanut butter flavored granola bar in the afternoon. Like I had these weird rules where it was like, you can't repeat colors. Um, you can't have two of the same color of foods on your plate mm-hmm. and you can't repeat flavors. Like I had to have this healthy separation between mm-hmm. all of those things mm-hmm. in my head spaced out like planned days in advance mm-hmm. um, and uh yeah that's that's something sometimes like you know it still pops up where I'm like I'll be having yeah like like peanut butter later in the day and I'm like oh you know I had peanut butter in my oatmeal this morning like that's funny it's funny that like I used to be afraid to do that and here I yeah. am like doing it right now and it's just like <laughs> one of those aha moments where you're like wow like you've come so far like look at you eating awesome. butter two times in a day <laughs> yeah yeah it makes you appreciate those little moments but that sounds so overwhelming to have all of those rules in your head to and be constantly trying to remember all of those things did, did you ever figure out what was the source of those little rules um Honestly, I think it like I'm not officially diagnosed with OCD, but like mm-hmm. I think a lot mm-hmm. of that was just like obsessive, like yeah. Com- yeah. compulsive, like symptoms. Yeah. Um, because like I have little weird things I do still that like don't even relate to food. Okay. Um, but I think it was more of like you know the way things looked in my head and like mm-hmm. how they looked on my plate. Yeah. Um, where I yeah just that combined with like perfectionism I think just made for uh, a very interesting uh, phobia which like my mom my mom like did not understand like you know who it's something like that's super strange Um, but Mm -hmm. she you know I get like legit mad at her when she like put you know broccoli on my plate and it's like I had broccoli for lunch like how dare you and she, <laughs> it's the worst she just, thing she could do <laughs> yeah like it didn't even matter if it was healthy or unhealthy like I mm-hmm. yeah I just struggled with it um yeah. to the yeah. point where I would like I'd cry sometimes or I just like mm-hmm. I'd walk away from the dinner table I wouldn't eat because I couldn't believe that like why would you, you know, why would you put cheese on these burritos when, like, mm-hmm. I had cheese earlier in the day, like, you knew that, um, but I had a lot of things like that, but, mm-hmm. like, especially when other people were cooking for me, like, I didn't care if I hurt people's feelings, like, it was worth it to me, again, to, like, mm-hmm. stay in my safe zone and to not deal with the consequences and, like, punishment that came after. Yeah, yeah, that, that definitely sounds extremely difficult and like a lot of emotion in that as well. But so glad you're on the other side of that now where you can look back and kind of laugh about it because obviously you weren't laughing about it then. It made complete sense to you then. But now that you're on the other side of your eating disorder, you're like, hmm, that was a weird little quirk there. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is interesting. But at least you know some, some idea of makes sense if you have some OCD tendencies in other areas of life like why that would appear in your food Mm -hmm. as well yeah yeah for sure 
Yeah. Did you have anything else to add to that question? Yeah, I don't think so. Just, yeah, lots of obsessive tendencies and the planning and mm -hmm. jumping on fad diet bandwagons. And yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's all... so hard because society promotes like all those diets that you were talking about and all of those lifestyles. They tell you that that's what you should be doing. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. We, I had a friend recently who was like telling me that him and his wife uh, are doing the paleo diet and that mm -hmm. uh, it's actually like, you know, really it's really not that hard and like it still allows room for cheat days and like even that language I'm like yeah. oh cheat days like don't say that to me. <laughs> yeah. not that it's like not that like I'm gonna be triggered to go like that's not triggering to me anymore but like just those words like make me cringe where I'm like yeah. oh like you're yeah. preaching diet culture and I just like want to go cover up with a blanket <laughs> yeah, right and it's so interesting when your eyes are open to diet culture and the toxicity and just how it's everywhere it's so mm -hmm. hard to unsee it and when you do see right. it it's like oh that is just so horrible like why is everyone falling into that but it's very different once your eyes have been open to it versus someone who isn't maybe aware of the dangers of diet culture and all of that. For yeah. sure. Yeah. And even if they're not like, even if they don't struggle with disordered mm -hmm. eating, yeah. like the impact that maybe their actions will have on those who do. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> yeah. Um, cool. So this question kind of goes in line with that concept or the whole idea of eating healthy, eating clean concept, but in what ways did labeling foods as good and bad impact your relationship with food? Uh, yeah, I mean, the question, like, that's the question I think is like, what even is good or bad? Like mm -hmm. that, and that's the question you have to ask yourself, like during recovery is, is like, why, why do I view this? Like, why do I think that uh, bread is bad for me? Like, mm -hmm. why, where, where have I adopted that lie? Um, and, you know, for me, a lot of that came from, like, fault, like, fake news. <laughs> um, <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but also, like, um, you know, um, when I first started my Instagram, which used to be Believing Beautiful, um, mm -hmm. now it's, sincerely Carly uh but it, when I first started the account it was Carly's counter mm -hmm. and um it was when I had just uh started living on my own in a studio apartment in, in downtown Portland and um I was it's actually when I met you um yeah I was cooking for myself a lot more and I'd make like these really beautiful like healthy meals uh mm -hmm. or you know what I what I thought was healthy at the time um and I'd sit down and eat them alone and I was like oh like I want to share these with people like I'm so mm -hmm. healthy like I want to like share all my tips with people yeah so I created this Instagram <laughs> account where I was like I'm gonna like teach people how to be healthy because I'm like the healthiest person ever yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I remember it, that account you did make some really like beautiful looking too <laughs> like it was very aesthetic <laughs> there are still some there are, like I still deep down on my Instagram there are like a lot of it's pretty much all food pictures and I've slowly been like deleting some of them um mm -hmm. but yeah like I did I did make some good things and even like when I was uh in my recovery and I was like you know eating a lot more of like the nutrients that I needed mm -hmm. for for my health and energy um uh yeah, I, I, like I enjoyed sharing those things and I still do mm -hmm. from time to time. But when it first started, it was like, 
it came from a very prideful place of like mm-hmm. and a place of denial still where I didn't think I had a problem and I just thought I was like super healthy um mm-hmm. but I started following like other fitness influencers and uh healthy healthy eating experts or whatever they mm-hmm. wanted to call themselves yeah. uh which really a lot of them were struggling with an eating disorder pretty um, much yeah <laughs> just yeah. passing on the eating disorder to everyone else <laughs> yeah yeah exactly it's like it's so toxic um Fair. but honest that's like where a lot of my skewed views of like good and bad food came from mm-hmm. was um uh, following these people who uh I you know didn't have any qualifications or a lot of them didn't but Mm -hmm. I compared myself to them and it was like this competitive game of like who can be healthier and like who can like eat the cleanest which I hate the term clean eating now (laughs) that's another cringeworthy term please don't use it around me um (laughs) I used to use it all the time and I'm right there with you I hate it so much yeah I used to I think in my bio it said like clean eater or like something like that (laughs) um which yeah it's it's I I can look back and like laugh and like have compassion on that version of myself Mm -hmm. um but at the time, like, yeah, it was, it was very hard to see the flaws in what I was doing, mm-hmm. um, or the flaws in what other people were doing, but it did create this, it just, what it did was it created more rules for me of like, mm-hmm. oh, I, yeah, like, I can't, I can't drink my calories, um, even if I enjoy, even if I enjoy this juice, like, I can't drink it, because then that makes me unhealthy, um, and mm-hmm. it's just these lies that get so twisted like you don't even realize they're lies anymore mm-hmm. um and it makes you judgmental of like yourself and of other people and it also puts you out of touch with your intuition like what you actually enjoy um like I love bagels and cream cheese I love them mm-hmm. so much but so I didn't yes they're so good like I every time I go to the store I buy bagels and cream cheese now and like I love um like different cereal that I used to eat as a kid like I love Captain Crunch I'm on a Captain Crunch mm-hmm. kick right now um, <laughs> yeah. and like I've been um challenging challenging myself like every time I go to the store to like I'll get a different cereal that like I used to eat as a kid but like during my eating disorder mm-hmm. I stopped eating completely um mm. because I thought it was like immature and like bad yeah um and so, yeah, what I was going to say, like, there are a lot of foods I neglected thinking, like, these things are bad for me. Um, mm-hmm. And when I started intuitive eating, which, like, I know we'll talk about later, but um, it opened this really beautiful door of, like, all these foods where it's, it's so fun to, like, yeah. go to the grocery store now. It's yeah. fun to, when I'm hungry, be like, oh, like, there's no rules, like, I can, you know, whatever I'm craving, I I want a bagel and cream cheese, yesterday I made, like, a um, wrap that had peanut butter, jelly, and banana, and I just, Mm -hmm. like, rolled it up, and it was close to dinner time, and I was like, who cares, like, I want this, it sounds good, yeah, Um, so, (laughs) it's so great, it's fun now, but, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, the, the good and bad labels that so many people get sued and it's really become just common language anywhere now yeah (laughs) Um, yeah it's it's destructive to people who are Mm -hmm. going through an eating disorder or who are struggling with disordered eating and Mm -hmm. and it only 
contributes to that list that you have in your head, or some people probably even have it written down of Mm -hmm. what foods are um, off limits and, and what are the safe foods. And uh, that list, as you get further down the rabbit hole, like that list gets of safe foods gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really does. That is a really great point that usually eating disorders or disordered eating, it starts out as just a few little things and it just slowly (laughs) becomes more and more and more. And then you get to a point like you're explaining where all of your decisions are based out of fear rather than what your body's asking for or what you're desiring. Um, but when you lift off those labels of good and bad and realize that food is just food, like I was in the same boat as you. So I totally get it. When you lift <laughs> off those labels though, there's such freedom to be able to actually listen to your body and make those choices. Obviously it's not that simple of a process, <laughs> but there's yeah. that freedom. I think in your book, when you were talking about like being able to eat whatever you want, I think you mentioned something when you were living in Australia, how somebody opened up the freezer and just like took a bite of ice cream and you're like wait you can do that that's allowed yeah <laughs> it's just like little things like that that an eating disorder would never let you do ever <laughs> yeah yeah and like in that moment my eating disorder is like no you can't do that like you can't no you can't like stop look away <laughs> she's like, doing something wait. horrible <laughs> yeah wait she's doing it why can she do it and I can't <laughs> um yeah but it's those it's those random things like you know, that you just, you write off when you're Mm -hmm. struggling, but then, yeah, the intuitive eating, it does open that door of like, wow, like I can have ice cream whenever I want it. And the, the, the thing that you learn too, like at first you can, it, you do feel, or at least I felt out of control at first. Mm -hmm. I felt overwhelmed with all the choice. Um, cause it went from like, these are the only foods I eat to like, you can Mm -hmm. eat anything. Um, and that can be really scary, I think, yeah, for someone yeah. who's like been living in a restricted world for so long. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you you do start to, I think, get more comfortable with it. And mm-hmm. you find that like, wow, like I'm not, at least during my eating disorder, like I was always thinking about food. Like I don't mm-hmm. think I had room to think about anything else. Yeah. And I used to joke with people and be like, I don't have an eating disorder. Like I'm obsessed with food. Like I love food so much. Yeah. And, and now like I was thinking about food all the time because I was starving all the time. Like I did was not giving my body the fuel it needed. Like I, you know, now when I get hangry, like it's not fun. And I'm like, wow, I was living in that world for like, you know, I feel sorry for all the people who had to be around me. (laughs) Right. You have to like backtrack and apologize for your behavior. That was years and years ago. (laughs) Sorry. I was just hungry. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I don't know where we are going with that, but um, for, for those who are like wanting to intuitively eat, like, I think it's important to validate like the overwhelm, the, yeah. the fear that happens at first, but also like as you stay on that path, like you're uh, thinking of food all the time, like that mm-hmm. does, at least I found, start to decrease like yeah. your super intense cravings that sometimes might lead to like binges, like mm-hmm. that that goes away. Like mm-hmm. you start to find like, oh, when I give my body what it wants, when it's, when it's asking for something specific, yeah, like I'm not... Un, like I, I don't feel out of control so much mm-hmm. around food and um, yeah it, there's it's, 
it's so freeing and yeah. and fun like food should be fun it should be an experience mm-hmm. it should not be uh like anxiety ridden mm-hmm. event like it's I yeah my I worked in residential treatment for mm-hmm. a little bit and um it that was also super rewarding every time when a client would decide to get seconds for the first time mm-hmm. and they'd like feel powerful like you just yeah. feel powerful when you're like you know what eating disorder like I'm not gonna listen to you my yeah. body wants seconds or you know I want some of the optional dessert tonight or whatever like mm-hmm. it's such a good feeling like it's yeah. just a it's like putting a middle finger to your eating disorder right yeah which feels so great and you're right it's such a brave step that people don't even understand how much like strength and bravery that takes to get seconds when that's something that your mind is screaming at you no do not get seconds this is a horrible idea and it's probably gonna scream at you a little bit afterwards Mm -hmm. as well but the more that you can do that and the more that you can stick that middle finger at your eating disorder the easier it becomes. But I think that's a really mm-hmm. great point that you validated the kind of chaos and lack of control that people feel when first releasing those food rules or trying to release those food rules, because that's often what scares people away from continually pursuing recovery or pursuing eat- mm-hmm. intuitive eating is it's like, okay, mm-hmm. I can't do this. I'm out of control because control has always been what people have been seeking when it's like, really, we want connection, not control. So when you feel mm-hmm. out of control, then it's like, you feel like you're doing something wrong or something bad or that you cannot possibly recover, but it's just part of the journey. Yeah. Right. And, and for all the ones out there too, like, because we uh, value and, and seek after control so much, like something mm-hmm. that has always helped me, at least since like my recovery journey was remembering that I don't actually have control, but instead it's Mm -hmm. an illusion of control. It's this false illusion of control and just reminding yourself that like, oh, I like, even though I think this is like bringing me peace and like is something that like I can, I can navigate and like have this strong grip Mm -hmm. on, it's actually just an illusion. Like it's made up. I don't actually have control over anything. Yeah. Um, That's so good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's also scary, but <laughs> terrifying. Yeah, especially for a type one. Someone yeah, I'm very seeking that control. That's absolutely terrifying. Today, yeah. my therapist, I had therapy before this. She said, mm-hmm. what do you have control over? And I said, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely nothing. <laughs> I was like, nothing. And I was just like laughing. And she's just like, oh my gosh, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> she's like progress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. (laughs) Cool. I think that's a good note to leave that question on. I feel like we could probably talk for like three hours. So I know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We'll go to the next one. Um, So something that I have found to play a large role in our relationships with food, especially when, when working with clients is the ways in which food was experienced and talked about as a child, you know, our families and our, you know, family of origin, they have a huge impact on our lives overall. And I know this is something that you talk about quite a bit in your book. So uh, can you spend a little bit of time discussing how food was experienced or talked about in your childhood? Yeah. Uh, So um, for those who don't know, my parents divorced when I was eight years old. Um, So uh, I guess my experiences with food changed, uh, Mm -hmm. obviously, in that transition. But 
when my parents were still together, um, you know, I don't really have any memories of Mm -hmm. sitting around the table as a family. Um, And maybe that's just trauma doing, uh, (laughs) doing its job. But But my most vivid memories are uh, my, my mom in the kitchen cooking and my brother and I would sit at our bar stools. I have mm-hmm. um, one full blood sibling, two half siblings that came into the picture uh, as I got older. Um, mm-hmm. But my my brother and I, we'd be sitting at our bar stools uh, across from the kitchen, and my dad would be behind us, sitting on the couch, um, which uh, was next to the TV. Mm-hmm. And he'd he'd be eating his dinner, watching TV. My brother and I had to have our backs face the TV and him, and we had to, like, we, we were told to, like, focus on our food. Like, we'd get in trouble if we looked at the TV, even though, like, you know, how that's so tempting as a kid. Like, there's yeah. TV <laughs> screen on, and you're just, like, you have to, like, sit Stare facing forward. the other direction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, even as an adult, that's hard. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we'd, we'd get in trouble if we weren't focusing on our food. Um, I never really remember my mom even sitting down. I just remember her like cleaning up the kitchen as we ate and she'd like sneak bites here and there. But um, there, I was a really picky kid. Like I had a lot of foods I didn't like. I liked ketchup on pretty much everything, I think. Um, but I liked very plain foods. And so whenever I didn't like someone, I'd get this, I have a lot of anxiety about like, because my dad was very strict. Um, I had a lot of anxiety of like speaking up and being like, I don't like this, or mm-hmm. I, I can't eat the rest of this or whatever it was. Um, mm-hmm. And the times when I did, or the times when even my dad just noticed me like sitting quietly, like in a panic in front of my plate, he, instead of like, you know, doing what I hope to do as a parent, which is like, get curious and, and ask my child, like, you know, what's coming up for you or like, mm-hmm. what what are you thinking about he would yell at us and be mm-hmm. like you know why like why aren't you eating your food like you need to finish the food on your plate it was like a sin to not finish our food like we'd get in my I would sit at the table sometimes for like at my bar school sometimes for like hours because I oh, couldn't bring myself to like finish my green beans or whatever mm-hmm. it was um my mom was a lot more gentle in that way. She would do, she'd do things that like a lot of parents do where it's like, you know, just finish eating your meat or like mm-hmm. take three more bites and then we'll like reassess or yeah. at yeah. least try a bite of this. Um, and when it got to the point where it's like, okay, she's still not going to eat. Like my mom would be like, well, like I'll make you PB and J or like, mm-hmm. let me make you something else. And then it would be like a war between her and my dad of like, Oh, no. you can't cave like that like she needs to eat her food and yeah. my mom would be like she doesn't want to eat her food and then like as a kid you're just sitting there like even more anxious and yeah. so you know it created a lot of stress um mm-hmm. as a kid it created a lot of um fear about doing what I felt was best for me um mm-hmm. and uh, there was a lot of punishment involved, um, way more punishment than reward. Um, mm. Even going to the grocery store, like I, I would go with my dad every weekend while my mom and my brother slept in and I would get like a talking to before we went in the store of like, do not ask for anything. Like we're not getting anything mm. off of the list. And there wasn't ever any like 
questions of like, you know, what do you want? Or like, how about you pick out this? It was just like, this is what we're getting. And a lot of it had to do with, um, you know, we weren't, we weren't like uh, poor, but my dad still was, you know, very much a penny pincher in the way Mm -hmm. that like, he was all about deals and he still is like, he wielded deals cars. Like he is all about the savings. Um, (laughs) And I'm just like, yeah, (laughs) the opposite now. But uh, when, when my, when my younger siblings uh, got to be to the age where they could feed themselves, they were still Mm -hmm. babies, but they um, were able to use their spoon and fork or whatever. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I was living with my mom as I got older. Um, They're uh, 13 and 14 now, but when they were small kids, I remember sitting at the table and when they wouldn't eat their food, I was doing exactly what my dad Mm -hmm. did to me. And my mom would, my mom would like want to give them something else or she wouldn't make them finish their dinner. And I would freak out. Like I was, I just like repeating my dad's, what he modeled for me which was like that's not okay like you have to eat your food like I had to eat my food when I was a kid yeah and it's a learned behavior yeah yeah where you're like wow you know you're so ungrateful like I just Mm -hmm. thought thought my brother and sister were so ungrateful and like they spoiled their dinner because they had crackers earlier in the day or whatever it was Mm -hmm. um and yeah it was a learned behavior that like I had to break out of and a big part of my recovery was like erasing the punishment to come from Mm -hmm. uh eating what I thought was too much or eating something that I labeled off limits in my head um Mm -hmm. because I there was a lot of both reward and punishment in my eating disorder days Mm -hmm. but mainly punishment of like this is the cost for Mm -hmm. like what you just ate or what what you didn't eat or whatever um yeah so yeah that that was took up consumed a lot of like my childhood and really is the only thing I remember about food as a kid um Mm -hmm. and as I got older my dad got full custody of my older brother and I um my Mm -hmm. mom wasn't in the picture for a little bit which I talk about in the book um food became really inconsistent and uh yeah, my, my dad bought a bar shortly after the divorce, wasn't home a lot, um, mm. and he made what he wanted to make, what he felt in the mood for, and never really took into consideration what we mm. wanted or felt in the mood for, um, yeah. so so that, that was difficult, too. Um, yeah, it sounds like food was very much a source of stress growing up, whether it was because you're being forced to eat something you don't want to eat or because of inconsistencies, or because of arguing between your parents about you not eating your food. It's like a child takes that blame on themselves for that argument. Mm -hmm. And it's like food was just very much the center of all of this stress for you. And at the same time, it was also something that only external forces got to decide for you. Like you said, you didn't learn to trust your body and trust that your body could tell you what what it wanted and how much to eat when to eat what to eat all those things it was either your parents deciding it or some other external force right yeah and and when I did get to an age of like being in high school and having my license and Mm -hmm. being able to have more freedom as to what I ate that was also really scary and like unknown territory because I I was able to like 
I could lie to my dad and tell him like, you know, I ate at my friend's house even when I didn't because yeah. like I, I had more freedom or mm-hmm. um, when I started, I lived with my grandma, my grandparents for a short time in high school. And like, I'd go to the store with them and my grandma did start asking me like, what do you want? Or like, mm-hmm. you know, why don't you pick out some stuff for your lunches? And the only, <laughs> I like, it just felt like someone had just taken off my training wheels, but I was still not ready to like ride my bike. And <laughs> I mm. was just all over the place of like, I don't know what direction to go. And, yeah, um, yeah. you know, the, and I think that that's where like disordered behaviors made me feel so safe because they did give me that control of like, okay, instead of like focusing on all these choices, I'm going to focus on like these four four options of cereal that like I've labeled as like the healthiest and like safe to eat um so I I think that when you do go from a place of like having no choice to like having all the choices like disordered eating does make you feel safe in that way Mm -hmm. and um and it definitely uh helps soothe some of my indecision Mm -hmm. but I've obviously found a lot healthier ways now to deal with indecision that like is very common when you go to the grocery store and there are like a thousand times of the same thing (laughs) so many options at grocery stores but you're so right that like the eating disorder gives you a level of certainty and structure and when you're used to having that structure with food not necessarily because you set the structure it's just what your parents decided for you or whatever finding some other source of structure is feel safe. It feels comfortable. It feels known. And it feels a lot less scary than trying to make a decision out of a million different options. Right. Yeah. 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 That makes a lot of sense. Um, this next question we've talked about quite a bit, so I don't know if you'll have a lot to add to it, but specifically, um, we've kind of talked about good and bad, those types of themes, as well as the expectations you have as a type one. And so how have you, well, for one, how do um, the standards you set for your eating patterns relate to the standards you set for yourself? And then in the past, how have you judged yourself when you have not met those standards? Yeah. well uh (laughs) I think that you know the standards that I set for myself um definitely kept me like I said in that really small box Mm -hmm. of not having Mm -hmm. a lot of like intuition or freedom um but now like what I think of is how um you know I've had to adopt new healthy coping strategies Mm -hmm. and um there are still times when I eat poorer than like I uh, think I should or when diet culture gets the best of me and I feel Mm -hmm. guilty the next day or um, you know something that really triggers uh, intrusive thoughts is like when I get a bellyache after eating Uh, and uh, yeah because I still have those expectations deep down Mm -hmm. I think you know it's a misconception to think that I think I believe at least it's a misconception to think that you ever fully recover I think that you reach a point of not being triggered to like Mm -hmm. act on past behaviors and you adopt healthier coping strategies but to think that like the eating disorder voice goes away completely forever and Mm -hmm. ever like to me that's a fairy tale because I that voice still comes in and I just I 
I have conversation with it now and I'm like listen here buddy I know you you get out of here better. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and that's something so good to for to tell people about because a lot of people have the expectation that it'll never ever be a struggle again once you reach recovery and that can one be disappointing because it doesn't go away and you feel like you haven't you aren't recovered or also you're caught off guard. Like you let your guard down and then all of a sudden something triggers you and you weren't prepared for that. And you weren't expecting that, Hey, I still have to have these tools in my back pocket Mm -hmm. in case I ever need them in case a trigger ever comes up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And when, when the uh, facility that I worked at the residential eating disorder facility, um, that was an interview question of like, you know, um, how long have you been fully recovered? And I was like, well, I don't believe in full recovery. And <laughs> it was this point where they're like, oh, well, what do you mean? And I explained myself and they're like, oh, well, we believe in full recovery here. And what I found in my time there was like, this is a damaging message to the clients here because they're getting this, um, they're getting their hopes up that they are going to get to a place where like, mm-hmm they're ready to go home. And some of them will have even like when I was working there would tell me like, I don't feel ready. Like I'm not fully recovered. And I I would remind them like, you're not going to reach a point of full recovery Mm -hmm. now. Like you will reach a point where like you, like the things that you're learning in here are all setting you up to help you continue navigating this disorder and continue Mm -hmm. moving forward in your journey. But like, you're going to have setbacks Mm -hmm. and that's okay. But like a lot yeah. of them would beat themselves up when they had setbacks or like they'd, they'd say things like, oh, I thought I was fully recovered, but this happened. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, stop viewing it as like, they're, like as a finish line because yeah. it's a journey. It's a journey yes. that you're on the rest of your life. Um, yeah. And it does, you know, there will be hopefully like, I haven't experienced it yet, but like, I'm sure there will be like years where like, my eating disorder is quiet and Mm -hmm. but I've found at least with uh stressful events or um you know anxiety or depression Mm -hmm. which are two things that I deal with that when I'm struggling um sometimes the eating disorder voice gets louder or Mm -hmm. when I used to hit milestones in my recovery my eating disorder voice would get louder and I'd be like what the heck like I'm making all this (laughs) progress like what are you doing back like go away yeah but it was like it was a challenge where I had to like make a decision in those moments of like am I going to like listen to this the disorder or am I Mm -hmm. going to like use these healthier coping devices that I have and and assess um and so that's really what I do now like with high expectations that I place on myself um or stuff that comes up like I was mentioning, um, sorry, I'm still a little bit congested from my recent sickness, but yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I'll be honest. It was COVID. Um, (laughs) I ratted you out. I'm sorry. (laughs) I saw it on Instagram. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but I had, what I was going to say is like, I had a recent experience where like, I did have a stomach ache. It was last week. I woke up, Mm -hmm. I had ate I drank and and ate pizza and like had ice cream for dessert um Mm -hmm. and I just like woke up the next day just feeling like really bad about myself um and my eating disorder voice was super loud um Mm -hmm. and it told me like you you know you shouldn't eat today um Mm -hmm. and 
those like that was the moment where I had to be like okay well first of all no we're not doing that um but I had the choice of like how am I going to act on this and I ended up telling my partner like I'm having these thoughts you know I don't want to have them but they're coming up I don't know why um but I need you to like hold me accountable today um and just like remind me that like it's okay that I had pizza and ice cream last night like those are two delicious things that we should get to enjoy without like working for them mm-hmm. um but yeah that's I don't know if that answers the question yeah um, that totally answers it and gives us a lot more as well I mean but having that accountability is so <clears throat> important in recovery just everything you've been talking about here about like recovery being a journey there's the same concept in healing from trauma that you're never reached a point of like healed from trauma it's like you're always healing like it does get easier and you have periods of time where it's like oh this like feels a lot easier and the same thing happens with eating disorder recovery it's like you reach a point where it might be easier in some areas but then a trigger happens and eating disorder behaviors are coping tools like they're how we cope Mm -hmm. with the stresses in our life and so it makes sense that when something stressful happens that that's triggered or when you feel discomfort in your body from digestive issues that that's triggered and then it's this just act of defiance in that moment of being like I'm going to do the opposite of what this voice is telling me to do because that's probably the good thing to do is the opposite of what the ED voice is telling me to do but like you were saying I think it's really good for people who are in positions like us where we've been on this recovery journey for a long period to talk about how those voices still come up. Like for me, the wedding people, most people know that I got married back in October and like leading up to the wedding, that was so triggering for me. Like it was just constant, like trying to stay recovered because of all the messaging around weddings and how the bride needs to lose weight and just all of these ads like hitting me. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is like way too much. That was kind of part of my hiatus from Instagram in the summer, (laughs) but there's other reasons there. But anyways, the point is that it is, it's a journey and it's important that we know what those expectations we have of ourselves are and how we judge Mm -hmm. ourselves when those we don't meet those expectations because that will keep us from falling back into those old patterns right right and for Enneagram ones too I think it's especially if you're on the recovery journey to not beat yourself up when like that voice does come Mm -hmm. back up and because we are idealists like I think we want to believe in like I want to believe in like an end to recovery but Mm -hmm. like Um, you know, and realistically, like I have heard people say like, it takes four to seven years. That's a long time. And like, there's a huge variance in that. Um, And so as like an Enneagram one who's on the recovery path, like knowing that, like, especially if you're like passionate about helping others, like we are Mm -hmm. um, knowing that like, you can still do that, even if like, you're having (laughs) intrusive thoughts sometimes, because intrusive thoughts are not, um, they're 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 okay um Mm -hmm. and it's it's okay to struggle like to think that we are just gonna be like at our peak all the time um is super unrealistic but it's also Mm -hmm. I know like from experience something that one struggle with um Mm -hmm. is those unrealistic expectations so hopefully like those who are listening who are ones will find comfort in knowing that like those thoughts still come up and uh 
it doesn't take away from like your purpose or what you're doing or what you're passionate about. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And you just wrote a blog post about intrusive thoughts, didn't you? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So people, I mean, it'll be maybe a month after you've posted it by the time this airs, but people should definitely check that out if you had anything to add from that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm constantly, I release like at least two articles every week on medium. Um, mm-hmm. maybe we can put the link in or something, but, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, I post a lot of content related to overall, uh, well-being and, um, sometimes I share some of my eating disorder experiences. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm a big writer. I'm constantly releasing mm-hmm. new content. So if anyone's curious and hearing or learning more about any of that that's a great place to look yeah tons of resources from Carly (laughs) no matter what Enneagram type you are like everybody (laughs) can find help from it yeah (laughs) awesome yeah of course so obviously you've done a lot of work in your relationship with food which like we've discussed is such a difficult thing to do so how would you describe your relationship with food today and what specifically were the tools, mindset shifts and behavior changes that helped you to get here? Yeah, uh, well, my relationship with food is, as I mentioned earlier, very intuitive um, mm-hmm. and I love it. Uh, it's fun. Yeah, <laughs> and, way more fun. <laughs> yeah, and I, yeah, I love to be that person in like my group of friends or in my family circle who there might be some people who are struggling with, uh, with false messaging from diet culture or uh, with the thin ideal or whatever it might be. And I love to be that person to uh, bring some truth to the table and yeah. uh, be able to like set an example, even for like my younger sister who's in middle school now, which is like mm-hmm. when a lot of my body image issues started. Um, but very intuitive. I eat what I want when I want it. Um, and I do it without shame or guilt, mm-hmm. which is a lot different and opposite of how I used to live. Um, yeah. In like all of my experiences with food revolved around guilt and shame. So mm-hmm. um, that's been super freeing. And, uh, you know, some of the things that have helped me get here and to uh, be able to not focus so much of my energy on food and body and exercise all of the time uh, have been uh, therapy, number one, huge, <laughs> uh, huge. yeah, <laughs> I have been seeing a therapist for a long time. I have no intentions to stop that connection anytime soon. I feel that. Even, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and yeah, so that's been huge, um, vulnerability, uh, as I, as I mentioned is, um, so important and has been a great, uh, learning just experience uh, mm-hmm. through recovery and and since the start of recovery, but being able to you know tell my friends or people close to me uh, who I know have my best interests in mind, mm-hmm. being able to tell them when I'm struggling, when I need accountability, um, I found that super super useful. Um, <clears throat> affirmations have helped me. I I love affirmations and. Uh, even just meditating on a mantra, um, being able to like ground myself in moments where I might be like spiraling through anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> um, very important and, to have grounding tools in those moments. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And no shame with that, those things either. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
And yeah, lastly would be uh, yoga has really helped me. Um, I was telling my partner that every time I do yoga, there's like this new level of self-compassion that I hold for Mm -hmm. myself and for my body. And um, it's just, I found at least on my mat, it's a great place to really show up and connect with myself and honor like Mm -hmm. what my body's asking for, um, not what like other people's bodies are asking of them. Because as we know, like, comparison is a huge thief and Mm -hmm. um I know for me like especially when I started my intuitive eating journey it was hard to honor what my body needed from me when like Mm -hmm. one of my close friends was like doing what was best for them and maybe they stopped eating at a certain point because they were full or they Mm -hmm. um decided not to get seconds but still deciding in those moments like okay, well, I'm actually hungry. So I'm going to keep eating what's on my plate or um, I'm feeling like seconds because I really enjoyed the flavor of this meal. So like, I'm going to go get seconds, even though you're not. Um, But that's also been helpful with like yoga, just being like, okay, my body's not in the mood for a plank today. Like, we're just not going to do that. But like, I'll hang out in child pose. Like, I'll do what I need to do. Um, That's such a great thing about yoga is the instructors always, even if you do it with an instructor, but people who do the instructors always saying, do what feels good for you and giving you permission to do all these different alternatives. Cause like you said, everybody's body's different and on different days, one day you might feel plank one day child pose is where it's at and you have to listen to that. Yeah. Yeah. And like a lot of other fitness instructors, I found like Mm -hmm. sometimes that's a missing component where it's like push through the pain, like don't stop. Whereas like yoga really helped me break through that mindset of like, I have to like push myself, like I can't take breaks. Mm -hmm. Um, It helped me carry it into like other, because like I I do all kinds of movement now, um, also intuitively, like more than intuitive eating, I feel like my lifestyle is just pretty intuitive. Mm -hmm. Um, And with I, you know, struggled with excessive exercise. So I've had to sort of carry my intuition into movement too. And I've been able to carry that mindset into like hit classes or Mm -hmm. when I go on a run, um, being able to just be like, okay, like they might be telling me to push through, but like, I'm going to take a break or like, I, I need to lay down right now. Or sometimes I'll leave my, um, I have an Apple watch, but I actually haven't worn it for like, I've taken breaks here and there from wearing it. Just I'm mm-hmm. like, not really serving me right now. Like I just yeah. want to like be in tune and, and listen to what uh, my body's asking for of me, like on a run. Like if I want to walk, I want to walk. And I don't want mm-hmm. my watch to tell me like, why are you slowing down? <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's like so many of us depend on those external validation or external cues such as smartphones or smart watches to tell us what our body should be doing and if we are doing good or doing quote bad or whatever it is and it's like that really hinders your ability to connect with your body and I'm not saying like smart watches are bad and nobody should wear them like they have a lot of good features on it me personally I cannot wear a smart watch I just get like way too sucked into all of it and so I'm like I'm just gonna listen to my body but you're so right in that how it's very helpful to take breaks from those types of things if you can wear them in short amounts of time but to take breaks so that you can reconnect with your body absolutely yeah and the last thing I'll add is just that if anyone if there's anyone listening to who has 
struggled from um, past trauma um, and is on that healing journey. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of research on the power of yoga and how it can help you heal from past trauma and things like PTSD. Um, So yeah, I I actually wrote an article on that. That's on Medium too with some research, but um, there's tons of research online too, Mm -hmm. just about the healing power of yoga, even if you know, you're not, uh, you don't consider yourself someone who's spiritual, or I know Mm -hmm. that like, there are some Christians who sort of fear the world, fear the world of yoga, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I found that I'm able to take my spirituality and, uh, just like I'm able to do what is best for my body. I'm able Mm -hmm. to like, tell myself the messages and connect, um, with the God that I believe in, like Mm -hmm. on my yoga mat. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. I mean, yoga is all about connection, like mind, body, mm-hmm. and spirit. And what you're talking about with trauma, a big part of trauma is disconnection, disconnection from your body, disconnection from your soul, and all of those different things. And so having something that can help you to experience that connection again, is really helpful. And I'm sure you like you said, you have a lot of research on your blog post about that. So that'll be really helpful for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, I think we've talked for like an hour and a half at this point. So, and there's plenty more we could talk about, but I think this was super helpful for a lot of people. Is there anything else you would like to add? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah, I just am grateful for everyone who made it to this point in the episode. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm a, I, like I said, I love self-improvement. I also am super passionate about eating disorder recovery and the Enneagram. So like yeah. I knew coming into this, like there's no way I'm going to be able to like keep my answers short. So um, yeah. I knew okay. coming into this that we would be talking way, lo- way long. So. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we had coffee not too long ago. And we yeah. also like, I think we ended up having like, we just needed to get on with our days because it's yeah. like we could have sat there at that coffee shop all day. Yeah, it's like, I have more to say to you and to talk about, but we should probably just leave. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on this episode. I really appreciate all of your insights. And I, like I said, I think this is going to be extremely helpful to so many people. I do have one last quick question that I'm asking every one of my interviewees on this season, just because I think it'll be interesting to see what people's answers are. So what is your favorite food? Ooh, yay. I love this question. Um, <laughs> my favorite food is Oreos. Um, mm. And don't, no one email or message me and tell me that's not a food because Oreos are, <laughs> they're totally a food. Yeah. They, yeah. <laughs> um, they deserve to be like their own category on, yeah, whatever the my plate or whatever. <laughs> yeah, the Oreo category. Yeah, must have Oreos on your plate. (laughs) Yes, my 2000, my 2022 goal is to try every single Oreo flavor ever created and available for purchase today. I want to try it all of them before 2023. And so my partner and I are doing it together. (laughs) And so far, we've tried close to 10, I think, and there's like over 80. Oh my goodness, you're going to eat a lot of Oreos. Well, there's you. Hopefully you don't overdo Oreos by the end of this year. True. True. Yeah. Hopefully you still like Oreos in 2023. I don't, they're so good. I'm like, I don't know how I could not like Oreos. Yeah, I feel that. I love Oreos. 
Awesome. Well, thank you everybody for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you.